Hello and welcome to another episode of the Folklore Podcast Book Club, where we talk with authors of books with folklore content or interest about their work. The Folklore Podcast Book Club is a part of the Folklore Network. All of our episodes can be found in the sound archives of the Folklore Library and Archive, a volunteer-run organisation with a goal to collect, save and preserve folklore material for future researchers. You can find out more at www.folklorelibrary.com. In today's episode, guest reviewer Bethan Briggs-Miller from members of the Folklore Network Eerie Essex podcast chats with author Cleo Valenza about her novel The Piano Room. The book is a gothic retelling of the myth of Faust, with the action set in Hungary between the 1970s and 1990s, and taking on LGBTQ plus themes. The Hungarian protagonist, Sandor Esterházy, is descended from a long line of talented pianists, but doesn't want to follow in their footsteps. So, one snowy afternoon, he calls up the devil, and offers to exchange his soul for a life of his own choosing. That night, the devil arrives at Sandor's house, dragging someone or something, behind him through the snow. Sandor locks the creature in the basement, allowing it out just once a night, but only permitting it to visit the piano room. Cleo was born and lives in Athens in Greece. She's won several prizes for her short-form fiction, and The Piano Room is her debut novel, published by Fairlight Books. Here's Bethan's interview with Cleo. Welcome to this episode of the Folklore Podcast, a book review. I'm here with Cleo Valenza, who is very kindly agreed to talk to us about her debut novel, The Piano Room. So Cleo, I just wanted to start by asking you, could you tell us more about yourself and perhaps what drew you to writing? Um, well, I've always written ever since I was a child. And so there's, it's not very clear to me what drew me to writing. And I think it was the urge to participate in reading in a more fundamental way, because I loved reading. And well, I was a bit obsessed with writing when I was a teenager. And though subsequently, I studied chemistry and was, um, no, I never studied writing or literature at any point in an official capacity. I always kept writing and then uh, started writing full time after university. But I think that what I always loved about reading was that I never aimed to make something permanent and perfect and immortal with it and it was always about searching for questions and making just focusing on the unanswerable questions and being able to make sense of things without requiring them requiring them to be understandable and the beauty and the tenderness of imperfection that what that's what always writing was to me from an early age and that's what I still try to capture it's those unanswered questions as you say that really come through in the book <laughs> um, what authors have influenced you with your work? Well, I love Emily Bronte and Karen Blixen and Mary Shelley, very obviously, and Susanna Clarke, um, John Le Carré. Uh, surprisingly, his style influenced me very much. Mm-hmm. And Mervyn Peake, uh, Neil Gaiman, and more recently, Sarah, uh, Sylvia Townsend Warner. So very recent <laughs> a discovery and already a favourite. I was going to say, because when um, I was approached with 
to do this interview, I was told your book was um, it centers around that familiar Faustian deal with the devil. But I did pick up a Frankenstein vibe as well. So definitely Shelley. Is this something that you planned or did it emerge organically? Well, it definitely was influenced by Frankenstein, like very consciously. I knew that I wanted to pick up the thread of the same questions that were in the in the novel and move along with the, the piano room and follow this very, very specific thread of what it means to be human and what is our responsibility. And I never, I never wanted to set up Sandor for failure. I think this came out very organically because of the decision he kept making as a character. So from a point on, I think Mary Shelley's uh, issues raised in Frankenstein became very organic and natural in the piano room. Because I think all of us would fail at some point or another faced with such responsibility. I think as well, I mean, that that first sort of conflict that Sandor has is something at some point all of us have had, um, that desire to go your own way and please your parents. And for many of us, it's just something we get through, but obviously Sandor gets himself into a bit of a pickle. <laughs> yes. And he keeps making these decisions that are based on violence. And this... Uh, leads him down a very specific path. Yes. Again, it's that sort of Shelley feel with the creator battling with the consequences of their actions and palming off responsibility. Exactly. So was um, folklore part of your life growing up or is this something you discovered later on? Well, um, being Greek, I think it has some inherent folklore because Greek orthodoxy is so very much entangled with folklore that especially in the countryside, is very prevalent. So I think just, you know, growing up with uh, my grandparents, I was very much exposed to it. But uh, I was very uh, independently interested in it as I grew up, and I kept reading on it, not from an academic point of view, but I just loved reading the stories, the folklore stories from everywhere I could. And I developed a soft spot for just reading the stories themselves or books inspired by folklore. And a particular favorite was uh, Krabat by Otfried Preussler. And uh, recently I've been reading a lot on the Greek Christmas folklore, which is very exciting and very, very dark. Yes, I've um, been looking into that as well. Uh, I'm doing a podcast and joining with another podcast on folklore and we're doing a Christmas special. And they are dark and grim and brutal, half of them. Yes, I love it. <laughs> the darker side of Christmas. <laughs> exactly. And it, it only it's, hasn't even begun yet. Your descriptions of the landscape and the environment are so rich and immersive. I mean, it almost feels like another character. How important is this to you in storytelling? It's very vital to me because, well, I think we can never be objective about our environment because we we live it through our senses and our state of mind and we all when it comes to a story like the piano room that focuses so much on the character's emotional psychological state the environment will always be twisted and viewed through a very specific lens and moreover i think that all of us are always influenced by how we feel at any given moment through our senses like textures and light and comfort all these are play a very important part in every single moment of our lives but I am always saddened when I read a book where it's not grounded in the moment when I needed to 
when it comes to like things like temperature are really important because um the piano room is a winter book but way back when i wrote a book that was that took place in greek summer and the sweltering heat and the impossibility of trying to go through an adventure throughout this heat was very prevalent mm-hmm. so i always love grounding my characters in their surroundings even though in piano room it might be a little bit elusive as a story in general but uh, in the moment i really need to know how the character feels in his surroundings um what the city feels like or what the room feels like this is always very important to me i'm glad you mentioned temperature actually cuz as i told you before i started recording i'm <laughs> on my second read through of the piano room and i'm noticing little things and temperature i've noticed comes through a lot so there was one bit i think um thirty was just outside his front door and you describe how he smelled the oncoming of snow and he winced because it, it had that sort of memory for him and then exactly. yeah. it was like an omen because later on as we know without spoiling anything um he's at a dinner and here's the music that gives him quite a chill so it's got this ominous feeling and now exactly, yeah. he hates snow now <laughs> yes when sandor does the spell Yes. Ritual invocation. I, I actually, without thinking about it, the house was really warm, but I actually pulled a blanket over and hugged my tea tighter because you, know, oh, you know, when you know, you remember how your hands hurt when you hold a snowball and all those, you know, the way it's described came rushing back. And then and most of the scenes are described either cold or damp or stuffy. There's never a comfort there. And I noticed one of the the few times you mention a warmth and comfort is with Peter and with the piano. Was that conscious or, or are you aware you did that? I was not aware of that, but uh, it makes sense because, you know, we associate comfort with pleasure and good feelings. So warmth is something very rare for Ferdi because he also used to live on the street and he was you know, raised in a way in a very cold basement. Mm-hmm. So and also it's something very new. So live and the dream of the South. I mean, as he looks forward to moving forward with his life, he's just in a search for warmth, whether it be emotional or physical. So I think that's lovely. I never thought about it like that. I think I thought about this regarding the piano because sometimes it might feel like somebody had already been there. Mm. The way we, you know, somebody has just, you know, sat up from an armchair and we sit in their place. So there is also the sense of presence, just like with Pedro. Mm. It's nice. It's always connected with Ferdi because I, I, I do like Ferdi. He's my favorite character in it. Oh, it's good to hear. <laughs> <laughs> um, so just thinking about the last couple of years, it's been a very strange and distressing couple of years with the pandemic. Did this influence your writing at all, do you think? Well, in the second year, very much. Because during the first year, just as the pandemic was declared, I signed with Fairlight Books. And I was in a crazy, crazy life where I had a book coming out. And there were many months where I had to rewrite several things because the amazing people over at Fairlight Books gave me some fantastic notes to make it much better. And there were months when I just dove back into the book and it was an immense help. Mm. And this ended uh, earlier this year. 
when things start not going that great for me, emotionally, psychologically, just moving away from the book, it hurt for, in a way because I was leaving behind something very big. Mm-hmm. So at that time, I wasn't able to fill the well like we all do when we need a break because everything was shut down and we were in, a, we were in lockdown. It was very hard. So the second pandemic year was very hard and I was not able to write. It was one of my worst writing years. But I am hopeful because things are opening up a little bit now. Oh, I don't know whether it's for better or for worse, but I try to take advantage as much as I can. So I can be able to write again. Definitely that feeling of being shut in and how it's described exactly. is very much how perhaps a lot of us felt. As you say, in that second year, more mm. than the first, maybe because it was winter and the I first mean, one was in the summer. Maybe, but I think that we had all, you know, felt very much outstretched and we're at some point we're going beyond our, what we thought we were capable Mm-hmm. So, I mean, your novel isn't just split into two timelines. It's also the viewpoint of two protagonists. How did you build that story? Did you do one person's story or one timeline and then switch to the other? How, how did you go about that? Well, I wrote it in, in a very linear way because uh, it started as a NaNoWriMo novel and I wrote all of Sandra's part. I mean, the part in the set in the 80s in Sandra's point of view in particular. And for about a year, that was it. And I didn't move on with Ferdi's point of view 10 years later for a while. Mm-hmm. And it for a few years, it was completely in a linear way until I decided about the third draft that I wanted to shuffle it a bit and wondered how would it look like if I actually swapped the chapters. And it turned out to be a very different book. And when I we, it was time for the final rewrite with Fairlight Books. It was something entirely different. I sort of love that because it, I, couldn't, I couldn't foresee it. So the um, relationship between Ferdy and Peter, I know from just looking online, it's a relationship that has really touched the hearts of the readers and they've really liked it. And I just want to know, did you always know there's going to be an LGBTQ part to the story or did the relationship come about from you writing and then you discovered that there? It's definitely the latter because as I started writing Ferdy, it came up very organically that uh, he did not identify with his body at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, he always viewed it as Sandra's body, even just using the pronoun he is a stretch sometimes for him. Uh, I mean, for us. And as he started following his heart and exploring the world and having a social life, uh, the main the main issue for him would be to discover how he felt about these new feelings, like discovering his sexuality, and not so much about who triggered it, because he was not nurtured in a society like like you and I. And I've only touched this very briefly, but I think that in the future it would definitely be an issue with um, discovering his gender as well. But because this is a very long process and we're only accompanying Ferdi in the very beginning of his journey, mm. we start just by seeing him discover he, having feelings for another person that are not just friendly feelings. Yes, um, definitely we describe Ferdi's journey as more organic and 
following his heart, as you say, and there's Sandor, who's this mirror image, literally, and is sort of the opposite. And I mean, what struck me again on second reading was when um, Maggie left at the mm-hmm. very beginning and he didn't think, oh, is she going to be okay? A lot of his worries were for himself, whereas Ferdy always thinks he's not perhaps good enough and always thinks of others. They really are a mirror image of each other. Yes, and I think the I think Sander embodies many things that all of us go through and all of us feel, but he gives them a lot of room and a lot of well food in a way. I mean he 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 feeds these thoughts and the selfishness and the violence. Mm-hmm. And that's where they completely diverge because I think they're much more similar than they would like. But uh, in a way, it's their choices that set them apart as they grow. Definitely, definitely. So um, are you thinking of following the story, following Ferdy's journey, or um, are you going to go down another avenue? Or basically, what are your next plans? Well, I'm definitely not thinking about uh, following up with the piano room at the moment. I don't know what the future would bring, but uh, I think... Even when I start writing again, it will be something entirely different. But I think like any writer would would point out that I probably return to some very familiar themes because, well, these are our unanswerable questions. But at the moment, I'm taking a break because it has been a very hard few months and I really need to refill the well. So I'm just shifting my perspective for a while and working on other things and uh, not writing so much and trying to absorb art as much as I can and work on um, well going back to my science roots for a while and just trying to you know shift different gears and get things working again yeah definitely says that you well deserve break as you say to refill the well I think we, we can all identify with that thank you so much for um, joining us today it's been lovely talking to you and finding out more about the book and I cannot wait to see what you come up with next thank you so much for having me and thank you for reading and happy holidays happy holidays indeed thanks to Bethan and Cleo for getting together in virtual space to record this interview the piano room is available wherever you normally buy books in a moment News about our season end special. But first. The Folklore Podcast Book Club is part of the Folklore Network, striving to collect, save and preserve folklore material in all forms for the future. If you can help to support us in our work, please visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash thefolklorepodcast where for as little as a pound a month you can aid us while receiving additional content to enjoy. Alternatively, visit www.thefolklorepodcast.com to make a one-off donation, or simply share our content with your friends. If you can, please leave us a positive review on your podcast app of choice to help others to find our work. Thank you. To close Season 6 of the Folklore Podcast, Our next episode is a special one-off departure from the norm, with a recording of an evening that I hosted as part of Robin Ince's 100 Bookshops tour of the UK recently, promoting his new book, The Importance of Being Interested. 
Robin is a comedian and broadcaster with his own successful network of podcasts and live shows, and is the co-host of The Infinite Monkey Cage on BBC Radio 4 with Professor Brian Cox. With his permission, you can listen to his discussion of his book, science generally, and his interest in folklore in the live recording that we made a few weeks ago. There will also be a special musical piece to end that show too, and to find out what that is, you'll have to join us again soon. In the meantime, thanks for listening. See you next time. <laughs>